0: Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm particularly pleased today to welcome Mike Davis to the podcast. Mike is a pioneering American writer, political activist, urban theorist, and historian, best known for a seminal analysis of power and social class in his native Southern California. Over many decades, Davis has created a powerful body of work investigating a wide range of issues from urban development and globalization to extreme weather systems, slums, pandemics, the environment, all underpinned by a profound critique of capitalist social relations, and a deep concern for the environment and all kinds of injustice. Thank you very much, Mike, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. It's a real honor to have an opportunity to speak to you today. My pleasure. So just before we begin, if you could just maybe tell us a little bit about your background and, and your current work focus, Mike.
1: I have a very eclectic background, but I grew up, Uh, in a working-class community east of uh, San Diego. And, I mean, people talk about uh, their burning bush experiences. Uh, I actually had one when I was 16 and delinquent and heavily, you know, drinking very heavily and so on. I have Black relatives by marriage. And they were very worried about me, so they brought me down to a civil rights demonstration, Congress of Racial Equality, downtown San Diego, and it really set the course of, of my life. I was it was only when I had a first child uh, and was in my mid thirties that I thought about a career uh, for the first time. Before that, it was the movement and. You know, I did a lot of different blue-collar blue, blue collar jobs, um, but I hallucinated that I was a, a serious revolutionary. And my politics uh, really haven't changed much uh, since the, the late 1960s.
0: Yes. Yeah. And you a buddy of work, Mike, which in many ways has been far-seeing drawing attention to crucial issues that were not on many people's mind at the time, the impact of El Niño, the proliferation of slums, pandemics, to name a few. I'm just wondering today, enmeshed as we are in all kinds of complex environmental problems, Mike, what is it that worries you the most about this moment?
1: What worries me most is the the tremendous energy and, and rage of young people. Uh, it's being demobilized in so many different countries and so many major countries. Uh, here, you of course saw this incredible outpouring of support for Black Lives Matter. The Sanders campaign, you know, mobilized um, tens of thousands of volunteers. But right now, there's very little uh, happening. I mean, you could point to localities where there are, you know, important struggles going on and so on. But I kind of measure things because I'm an old person who's cut off from um, uh, most active politics by my two younger children who just turned 18, just graduated from high school. And last summer was extraordinary because uh, particularly my youngest daughter And uh, my younger kids identify with their mother as Mexican. And last summer, they became involved in the BLM protests. And uh, my youngest daughter (laughs) came within a hair's breadth of ending up in the, uh, you know, the who's cow, but it was tremendously exciting for them. And, you know, it offered them. Uh, a hope is, you know, they saw the rest of their generation. Now my kids went to, uh, you know, did not go to elite schools. On on the contrary, they went to inner city high school, and it was amazing to see, you know, working class uh, kids from working class new immigrant families, Latinos and Asians, you know, side by side with. Uh, black students and uh, 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 the protests. I mean, this was could have gone into profound radicalism in a way, but it's been demobilized. Everything was staked on the elections and on the Democrats in Congress. And this, of course, is uh, an ancient phenomenon. 110 years ago, the German social democratic Sociologist Robert Michaels analyzed the transition, the transformation of German Socialist Party uh, by electoral victories. The party had gone very quickly from being underground, clandestine party, to becoming the second and then the first largest party in the Reichstag. Created hundreds and hundreds of of you know full time positions in, in local government uh, and in national government in Germany, and w- what happened is I think in some ways uh, the biggest single problem I have with my my own you know belief system. The question is, can the left in power? Does the left in power? actually empower activism at the base, increase the number of people, you know, participating in union struggles and so on. And the experience again and again is no, it offers itself in power as the substitute. Uh and you know we're we're seeing seeing this happen in uh uh in this country it's people are being you know demobilized and uh my youngest daughter, again, is, is is an example. She's kind of feels kind of absolutely aimless right now. She was ready to pour her heart and soul, uh, you know, into the, uh, you know, into the struggle. And Bernie got elected and we're all Bernie supporters uh, in this house. But he was elected around the idea that uh Political victories would bolster the movement and the movement would, you know, bring about political uh, victories. But only one half of that is proven to be uh, uh, true. Uh, The movement has not been, you know, uh, energized. And in fact, street politics, protest politics has become, I mean, so predominantly a franchise of the far right in the United States right now, Uh, you know, they have all the institutions. They have institutionalized anger in an incredible number of, uh, 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 of ways. And they're, you know, they're everywhere. And this is a great tragedy because this generation is unique in American history because, you know, every poll shows the Generation X, but particularly Generation Y, to which my kids, younger kids, uh, you know, belong, uh, are highly critical of capitalism. In fact, you know, reject it. You've never had such high polling numbers for socialism, even if, nobody <laughs> there's not much agreement on what socialism is. <laughs> yes. And uh, you know this is a much higher quotient of radicalism at least in terms of uh, kids belief systems than in the 1960s and it's propelled above all by youth youth of color and by the solidarity that they've created amongst uh, amongst each other a lot of emphasis, was placed in the coverage of the Black Lives Matter protest on participation of white uh, people in it. But the really dominant uh, trend was the unity of new immigrants and uh, kids of every kind of uh, color together, particularly in in here in a state where there's been some history of antagonism between Latinos, you know, and Blacks. Uh, the lakino kids were you know, were absolutely you know, solid and enthusiastic in the BLM protest. So you had this great moment, but the energy is dissipating, and uh, I think some a, a tragically large number of young people find themselves aimless. They want to fight back. but it's totally unclear what in, instrumentality. Uh, you know, what organization will allow them uh, uh, to do that? And a lot of people, including even old fogies uh, uh, of my age, you know, are too depressed, really, uh, you know, to take, uh, take initiative. And I have to plead guilty to this, too. I haven't written anything this year, first time in 35 years that uh, I kind of abandoned my regular um, uh, writing set, you know, program of writing, mainly in order to spend time with my kids, but also because the situation here, if you look at it realistically, is, this is probably as, as dangerous a period as, say, 19th. 38, 19 uh you know 42 in some ways even uh even more dangerous in terms of the dark forces that have been called from the underground and the lack of substantial victories of the kind that advance people's movements
0: yeah you're fascinating you talk about demobilization of, of the young people and Wondering what, why, what, do you think is happening there. I mean, I, I've spoken to some. Uh, I mean, there's the Sunrise movement. There's Greta. I mean, at a global level, uh, I, I interviewed some young young activists at at uh, COP26, um, and, and they, they, only a small number actually made it there, but very passionate, very, very engaged, and uh, very anxious, and very disturbed, and worried, and they carry a lot of a burden. Um, in that way. I'm just wondering, you're seeing it from uh, closer to home uh, in, in, with your children and, 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 and in America. I'm just wondering what, what you think has happened there.
1: Well, I mean, what was so distinctive about the BLM movement was also its class composition. And, you know, again, I rely on personal experience here of kids in an inner city high school. Where there's just you know tremendous support, uh, you know, for BLM. I mean, the potential for movement, the potential for people, com- young people, committing themselves to lives, uh, lives of struggle, is huge. But what happened here is that the electoral politics ended up supplanting uh the protest and this is not a mistake that has been made by the republicans the republicans lie you know rely on protest yes
0: yes they
1: rely on civil disobedience they rely on the creation of of you know disturbances and in some ways uh, all the historical lessons of the American left seem to have been you know uh, you know, better understood and, and, and adapted on the right than they currently are on on the left. I mean, I don't want to give a picture, you know, of total defeat or uh, or, or des- desolation, but never has it been more urgent, you know, for a generation to roll into uh, in, into action. And right now we're in a deep lull, and you know my fear is that a lot of people will, you know, give up any hope of of social change, um, you know, through their own uh, activism, particularly as long as there's no um, there's no movement, you know, or leadership offering uh, perspectives. I thought the most cheering thing in Glasgow, actually, was Goethe Thunberg and her, you know, friends, you know, just saying that, look, this whole process has become, uh, you know, nothing, you know, but a deliberate deception. Uh, This whole idea that the big powers will collaborate and, you know, save lives in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, this idea that you know we need to lobby uh, uh, governments uh, about uh, uh, climate change, and the implication, of course, is the movement now has to shift into a much more you know aggressive stance, you know, with more confrontational and uh, you yeah. know more 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 focused uh, actions against the energy companies, against uh, conservative governments. And above all, this idea that, um, you know, capitalism, finance capitalism, is the only force that can save the world. And is somehow can be talked into committing itself to that. In fact, you, you know, in, in my neighborhood, you drive down the street, and gas at the highest prices in the history of California, and uh, the reason, of course, is that the energy companies, you know, realizing uh, that demand will eventually uh, drop for oil, uh, are trying to you know extract as much profit uh, as you know as possible. And there was a poll in California, which I found totally dismal. And it interviewed people, pulled people who acknowledged climate change, worried about climate change, but they were asked, what if gas prices increased by 10%? And their answer is, then we need more oil. and We need, you know, we need more, uh, 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 calls. I mean, uh, it, it just shows you in a way that the ability not just of the energy industry but of the whole system to create crisis in daily life that essentially you know push people to the side and in you know in struggles for. Uh, global objective because people are so in just defending the existing standard of uh, yeah. of, of living.
0: Yeah. Now, it, it, in an earlier book, you, you you dealt with the avian flu, and I'm just wondering what you think about the way various Western governments responded to the COVID-19 pandemic. What that says about political responses, possible political responses to climate. I guess, particularly response to countries in the global south. And I think you wrote recently, in a warmer world, socioeconomic equality will have a meteorological mandate.
1: Well, uh, first of all, what's actually at stake here, and I think that after Glasgow, uh, a realistic analysis, conservatively realistic analysis is welcome to RCP 6.0 world. RCP stands for uh, representative concentration pathway, and 6.0 is a particular uh, uh, model of that. These are scenarios, socioeconomic scenarios, that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, uses to... uh, Project future uh, uh, future trends, and the whole idea uh, that 1.5 maximum uh, increase, in, you know, in temperature is still possible—simply ridiculous. You know, we're barreling down the road; we'll pass that uh, very soon. And what looks most likely? And is acknowledged by, you know, by increasing number of climate scientists, is rather we're going to get into this 6.0 world, where uh, peak emissions won't occur until the middle of the century, uh, not, you know, not by <laughs> two thousand and thirty uh, uh, it's demanded. Uh, uh, now, and we're going to see uh, temperatures rise by at least three degrees, you know, possibly more than that. And as I said, this is a conservative scenario in the sense that it does include you know, the growth of you know, solar power, it does include maybe uh, you know, taxation of uh, of carbon and so on. but when you project uh population growth, and you look at the, you know, the control that energy corporations and others, uh, asset managers, private equity have over uh, our lives, that's where we're headed. But what does that mean? Well, it means in the case of Africa, for instance, which is the most rapidly urbanizing continent, the youngest continent, 40% of the population, under the age of 15, a continent where people's main staple, uh, main food crop is maize, maize, uh, what's going to happen is, uh, and there are you know, a, a dozen different studies of this that uh, people can consult that have been produced in the last decade, is a decline uh, in... Uh, Maize production up to 40 or 50 percent in Africa. This is a, a catastrophe uh, because there are no, uh, it, it's very difficult to find substitutes uh, for maize because so much of <clears throat> the arable land in Africa has been degraded. And the green revolution in Africa, the new green revolution, which was premised on increasing the pre- productivity of uh, maize hasn't occurred uh, smallholders can't afford to buy the fertilizers uh or or the seeds they're cut off from markets by uh lack of infrastructural investment uh and so on yet at the same time and there's a lot of attention given to this in the last week uh people are talking uh talking about that uh, by the middle of the century, 13 of the 20 largest cities in the world are going to be in Africa, including the very largest, uh, Lagos, uh, Kinshasa uh, predictions are almost unbelievable. they're built in in a way because of the dual factors of you know the young median age in Africa, and the rate of family formation likely to occur, and the fact that agriculture becomes unsustainable and agricultural systems break down, this will increase the flight to the cities. It will, you know, make the great super cities of Africa uh, dependent on imported food, surrendering a huge amount of economic power and control over the future uh, uh, to outside forces. But if you now look at what the reaction of you know the wealthy countries is, it's clear that we're on a road toward genocide. And I, I don't use the term lightly. I think the poorest fifth of humanity uh, are in mortal danger. The whole idea that the rich countries were gonna get together and provide uh, sufficient aid for the adaptation of uh, of, uh, agriculture in poorer countries to meet climate change. And and we should also remember that world grain production has to increase by at least 50% to feed the population uh, the middle of the century. But the whole point of my kind of you know prolonged argument here is that was always uh, <clears throat> fantastic thinking, uh, almost magical uh, 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 thinking. Uh, Glasgow shows the rich countries will do what they and the fast developing countries will do what they they want to do. And the migrant prices, in the Middle East, and now COVID have shown us that all that's gonna happen in in the face of hundreds of millions of people who need to move or desperate to find, uh, to board an ark somewhere uh, to find survival, Uh, what will simply happen is that xenophobia you know, and nativism will become even more, you know, powerful forces. So I don't see any way that you can connect all these trends together and come up with any scenario than that hundreds of millions of people, a billion, billion and a half people are in mortal danger over the next, uh, uh, you know, generation. And this, I think, a compelling and urgent need to be very clear about this, uh, to say what's at stake and see the, you know, the, the, the barbarism that's being shaped, you know, in the wealthy countries, you know, it, you know, is, you know, bodies of little boys worship on beaches and hundred people at a time, you know, drown in the Mediterranean or die of thirst in uh, the deserts, southwestern. Uh, United States. Here in the United States, the um, some elements to the right now accept Im- climate change, but uh, frame this totally as an issue of alien invasion, of you know immigration. We can't support all these people. We're we're you know about to be overwhelmed at the. Uh, You know, at the borders and this kind of thinking, uh, you know, this kind of violently reactionary politics isn't uh, diminishing. Uh, I was one of the people who was quite wrong in predicting that, you know, a large minority of the Trump vote. Trump got, of course, 72 million votes uh, in 2020, a large portion of this. Which just tactical votes, uh, you know, because of the fear of job loss through implementation of COVID, quarantines and uh uh and the like. But the polls, you know, as well as election outcomes recently, you know, show this 72 million person block in this country, um uh, you know, is 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 not uh Uh, losing ground. And it has, in fact, created a kind of situation of dual power in the United States because of their control, absolute control of 23 state legislatures and governorships, uh, currently drawing up boundaries for new election districts after the uh, 2020 census, bunkering in and strengthening themselves uh, in comparison, you know, with the Democrats, you know, and likewise, you know, in, in Western Europe, because, you know, even if you say that the protests in Austria, and the Netherlands against COVID policies, you know, are really, you know, however large the demonstration, they're really a small minority of people. That's not true when it comes to immigration issues. And I look to the example, for instance, of Denmark, which is a country that once uh, prided itself on its humanitarian immigration policies, you know, uh, and is now, you know, busily deporting people uh, in the way that Trump hoped he would uh, be able to do.
0: It's a terrifying vision you paint there, Mike. Um, the scale of... Disaster. who carries the burden, who will bear the burden of this uh, extraordinary en- environmental degradation, this uh, climate uh, cr- crisis. Um, what do you think is going on with the people in power? Um, to what extent do they understand, recognise what's going on? To what extent do you think um, they they're, they're, they're overwhelmed by their ideological Uh, biases, to what extent is there something darker?
1: Well, power, of course, the whole constellation of power in each nationally specific case has changed greatly in uh, the last generation. When Reagan came to power, he came to power on the basis of, of campaign contributions and the most coordinated corporate Uh, effort to influence politics in American history. The major manufacturing corporations and the big banks joined together in something like the Business Roundtable, which is almost a caricature of this idea of the executive committee uh, of the ruling class. It it was represented unprecedented unity at the top around globalization, around defeating uh, uh, labor, deregulation, and so on. Situation's very different today. The giant manufacturing corporations that dominated uh, post-war American history uh, no longer exert any kind of uh, uh, common uh, uh, a force in in, uh, in politics. They'll lobby around their own interests. But you end up with a configuration of power where, in a way, the peak of the economy, you know, has uh, become finance capital. And not just in the banks, which, of course, recovered and has grown even more monopolistically powerful uh, since 2008. But in terms of hedge funds and private equity, you know, you know, using astronomical pools of capital uh, to control, restructure the economy, pushing millions of people out of jobs, the that sector of finance is probably split. I would estimate about seventy percent Republican, but thirty percent Democrat. Key supporters of the Democratic uh, center right, you know, the Obama's and and the Clintons. But the most unusual thing that's happened here is the role of what a friend of mine calls lumpen billionaires. These are people who become immensely rich, usually in the Hinterlands, uh, smaller Midwestern, and uh southern cities that you know they the, the you know the dominant families and they run discount stores they uh they trade oil uh they own vast chains of, of nursing homes where, you know, uh, more, uh, were you know more fatalities were incredibly high during the last year um And they have always existed as a kind of fringe of Republican politics. Back in the 50s, Texas independent oilmen financed the ultra-right, you know, John Bridge Society. But in the last generation, uh, their power has increased tremendously, and not just because of the money they spend on a specific campaign, a right-wing candidate but creating an institutional complex that's utterly unprecedented in American history, where state-level policies uh, are hammered out centrally and then handed to politicians to implement, where every single American state has a major policy institute uh, from the far, far right. Where Christian mega churches have been totally integrated as campaigning organizations uh, 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 for for the right, where the most powerful judicial lobby in American history is spearheaded uh, the takeover by the Christian right of the Supreme Court and very much at the higher levels of uh, the of uh, other federal uh, uh courts so this has been a real challenge for people on the left to understand because many of us is still thinking in terms of the world as it existed uh in 1980 or 1990 we're still thinking that, you know general electric is the is <laughs> yes. the most important corporation it's In breaking America. up.
0: It's breaking up right now. Generally, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. But
1: but the democratic side has has nothing to match this. The the trade union movement has been uh,
0: decimated. Too, and...
1: you know, too weak to to be a countervailing uh, force. Of course, we're all excited by the strikes and organizing campaigns that are going on. Uh, you know, right now. Uh, some people, I think, uh, particularly overseas, imagine that America is in the control of Silicon Valley, uh, and unquestionably, Amazon is probably the greatest monopoly uh, in history. But it's in fact these kind of hinterland, yeah, uh, mid-continental and southern uh you know elites which have provided the crucial investment and it, again let me emphasize not just in campaigns but to create this institutional network which is totally overpowered the democrats in you know so many different states and places
0: the situation is clearly urgent and a growing number of people see this as a climate emergency and as we know from the work of naomi klein emergency framings can be very dangerous associated with centralization of political power do you have any thoughts on how we can deal with the urgency of the climate crisis politically without the dangers of centralization of power
1: well i think uh first of all we need to have more specifically targeted campaigns targeted on energy corporations on private equity the whole question of public power versus uh Uh, You know, private power has to be, I think, far more sharply in uh, progressive programs. If you look at Occupy uh, and then the Sanders campaign, uh, it did a tremendous job of bringing income inequality to the forefront. But it never really talked about economic power. And as a socialist, I believe this is what socialists should be talking about uh, in every instance, the democratization of economic power. It's not the fact that Jeff Bezos is worth more than, you know, some medium-sized countries. It's the power he exercises, his ability to influence uh, investments um and dominate growth cycles um this is is the issue that has to be faced and and you know fighting climate change is inseparable from you know fighting corporations and raising this question of of economic power also the politics of climate adaptation are very poorly developed um in the United States, I think in some uh European countries it, it might be significantly different situation uh but not here. uh climate adaptation is in fact a, a huge terrain of, of future uh, uh you know class struggles. you know, where do they build the uh, the, the uh, you know, the dikes? uh who gets all the uh uh you know investment to protect it against increasing natural uh uh disaster because if if the rich countries created the problem and the poor countries you know have to consume the consequences this is also true within the rich countries themselves it's the poorest parts of the population and the most depressed areas uh, that will suffer, you know, the the greatest impacts. But the way the American political system operates now, uh, precedence will always be given, you know, to wealthier homeowners, uh, uh, you know, to richer, richer uh, regions. And climate change can also be instrumentalized uh, in some frightening ways. I was on the ground in New Orleans a week after Katrina, um, reporting for the Nation magazine and uh, Zeit in Germany and Le Monde Diplomatique, and watched ethnic cleansing carried out in a programmatic and deliberate way. You know, of tearing down housing projects that were perfectly solid and you know you know, well-built and had not suffered water damage. The whole, and and the goals of this had been expressed before uh, uh, the hurricane, that the city needed to purge itself of part of its black population, the poorest part. It needed to get rid of housing projects that stood in the way of, of gentrification. And that's what happened. The hurricane damage was instrumentalized uh, the Black vote in New Orleans uh, had kept Louisiana from falling down the path of Alabama and, you know, in Mississippi's hard right racist uh, you know, state regimes. But 20% of the population uh, couldn't return. was prevented from uh, uh, returning. Now it's in, you know, Houston Um, and and Texas changed the whole balance of power overnight. And using that as a kind of model, it's easy enough to project uh, similar situations where elite groups take advantage of climate disasters uh, in order to social engineer, uh, you know, the kind of cities or the you know the kind of tax benefits, whatever uh that they want to uh, acquire. So uh, you know, again, maybe I'm I sound very old fashioned because I am an old-fashioned socialist here, but the class but class struggles, economic social struggles, uh, you know, are built into, you know, every aspect of um the battles over climate change and adaptation. And finally, one example of this, in California, we've had all these uh, megafires that become the new normal. And our democratic governor goes to the scene of, like the burnout city of uh, uh, paradise in the Sierra foothills. And he says, this is the result of climate change. And this is why California has the most advanced approach to climate change of any state uh, in the United States. It sounds very good. The key to fighting fires uh, to reduce emissions, but of course it's a non sequitur because what it's not looking at is, is the fact that what has made these fires so, so deadly has been the movement of, of wealth into the scenic areas of the country, into the mountains, uh, you know, into the forest. Uh, the back country of San Diego County, where I grew up, uh, which was once called Little Arkansas, uh, now has four or five million dollar homes on, you know, every hilltop, right in the middle of the most dangerous fire ecology, uh, you know. In the world. But the governor doesn't want to talk about development or controlling development, doesn't want to talk about the housing prices and its relationship uh, to fire. And of course, mitigating warming, you know, is uh you know, is an absolute responsibility. But it doesn't do anything about the actual on-the-ground specifics of the fire problem, and that's all totally tied up with uh, the politics of exurbanisation and development.
0: Let's take a brief break to hear about an organisation we support. Global Witness a pioneering, campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. And now we're back to today's episode. You've spent decades looking at the uh, trajectory, track record, outcomes of social change, social movements in America. What insights? What 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 do you think? Uh, what advice would you give various groups? I mean, you've got here in the UK, we have got Extinction Rebellion. The, the United States got Sunrise Movement. There there are burgeoning movements still uh, growing. Um, I mean, I, I, notwithstanding your your comments about the experience of of uh, young people, some young people in America. What 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 would you say? Well,
1: I have no general <laughs> advice. Um, in this country, there's the a tendency to call older uh, radicals to see them as somehow elders. I'm not an elder. I have no tribal wisdom. Uh, to dispense. Uh, Rather, I try and be as attentive as possible to what young people are saying and where they're uh, uh, leading us. I mean, I've seen in my lifetime uh, the most heartbreaking changes, as well as some of the most stunning uh, progressive victories. The heartbreaking changes, my my dad was... uh, a founder member of his local in the meat cutters union and, you know, just a bread and potatoes union guy. And he believed that American history was incremental progress, great battles fought by ordinary people who established uh, uh, new entitlements to new rights. Which then formed the foundation for the next generation of struggle. But in his last years, he saw history going backwards, and his whole idea of a kind of liberal march of time or you know progressive teleology uh, collapse. And emotionally, for him, this, this is an over, you know, overwhelming crisis. Generation X and Generation Y have grown up in a time when everything won in the past is under is under siege. Where the right wing in this country, which never got over the 1960s, is intent on digging up all our buried, you know, buried heroes of uh, undercutting and reversing. Every fundamental advance—I mean, all the achievements of the Civil Rights Movement, particularly like the Voting Rights Act of 1965—you know—are being, you know, under attack and being dismantled, uh, you know, right now. And we just need to be acutely conscious of what the stakes are here—the gigantic uh, uh, stakes. And this demands a level of struggle and an intensity of commitment to uh, to movement building. But as I said earlier, you know the potential for that is out there in this extraordinary generation of uh, of younger people. But we've not found uh, organizational structures that are appropriate to that. Now I'm. I won't say anything more on this, but I'm right now, I mean, my my mind is preoccupied with fairly extremist uh you know ideas about what needs to be done. Once you accept what, you know, the real stakes are, um, I'm for I'm not advocating violence, but I'm advocating confrontational. Uh, uh politics writ large
0: yeah yeah as you say when when you focus on the stakes it, it does change uh your perspective it concentrates the mind uh just finally i guess uh california i mean california is in some sense a kind of fever dream of all kinds of techno utopian thinking And there's a growing momentum to find all kinds of technology solutions to global warming, like carbon capture and storage, and increasing discussion of even dangerous ideas like geoengineering. What are your thoughts on these kind of approaches, Mike?
1: Well, first of all, if you look at the uh, six IPCC report, and Volume 1's been issued, there were three special reports before that. Volume one is the physical science basis. Volume two will be out uh, next year. That looks at geographically specific and sectoral uh, impacts of climate change and so on. Built into all of the, you know, into all of the happier
0: scenarios. Negative emissions technologies of one kind or another, yes.
1: You know, exactly. And in fact, all this is, is unproven Uh, carbon capture and storage. Well, you know, it's a tiny boutique operation right now. People point out to, uh, you know, carbon capture, uh, a plant in Iceland, but it's tiny. It doesn't scale up at all. Bioengineering. uh, I mean, can you think of anything, you know, you know, more dangerous uh so, you know, this has to be discounted in these scenarios. And, of course, it's been very self-serving for big countries uh, to build this in to the IPCC reports. And for people who aren't familiar with how these reports operate, uh, what the press reads and what most people find out about, uh, are in the executive summaries. The executive summaries have to be approved by all the participating uh, government representatives. And as a result, they're often very different from the technical summaries, which is what people should read, uh, which are written by the scientists themselves, You know, uh, not by the governments. And for 30 years been building in unrealistic assumptions about uh, controlling climate change. Uh, a decade ago or more, I wrote an article about the IPCC pointing out that the scenarios relied on, you know, tremendously optimistic, and I believe impossible, amounts of spontaneous decarbonization then industries would just become more and more effective at uh, reducing their carbon in, imprint and capturing and 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 storing uh, their greenhouse uh, emissions. This simply has not not happened. I mean, so much in at least in the United States, the discourse about how to deal with climate change is all based on electric cars uh in you know in solar power uh that's not going to get you there and in the meantime we're going to see these big struggles over who bears the burden and pays the cost or receives the benefits of adaptation uh,
0: yeah and, and and many of the these carbon offsets and other solutions that are put forward in conservation they're all happening somewhere else. They're all happening in the global south. They're happening in 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 countries in Africa and so forth. And they're they're. Um...
1: Well, look. It it took thirty years before the term fossil fuel, yes, finally appeared in an IPCC uh, in a document. Look at the coal revival of of of, of the last few years. I mean you know, China's, you know, overriding goal, of course, is to maintain a high-rated uh, growth of the GDP. And that means, you know, they, as they become, you know, the leading country in sustainable power and so on, at the same time, you know, they're burning more and more coal. Now, the objective of the Glasgow uh, you know, conference it was set by IPCC goals of cutting admissions in half by 2010 and to zero by 2030. This is utter uh, science fiction. In, in some ways, it's a, you know, it's a brazen lie. To show scientifically it would be possible, but it would require Basically, a world socialist uh, or uh, you know green government, and of course we're going you know the opposite as more and more autocratic large countries, you know, uh, put their own national goals uh, uh, first. Is is Russia going to stop producing natural gas, at the rate that uh, the IPC? says? Of course. You know, of course not. Um, so we really have to adapt ourselves to the fact that adapt our imaginations to the fact that this is this is the new dark age, and human survival, you know, requires levels of political commitment and activity that are not more against hope. I, I've been asked so many times, "Well, do you have hope?" you believe in hope? My, my answer is always the same. Hope isn't a scientific term. And it's not the reason people fight. People fight for the because they love other people. You know, they fight for uh, uh, humanity. They fight because they're, you know, they're angry. This whole idea that, well, only be politically active as long as there's a reasonable guarantee that, you know, such and such. Uh, the outcome. I mean, that, that in my mind is, is nonsense. But I find it very harrowing that the only person in the world who constantly speaks about the solidarity of humanity uh, and takes every opportunity to do so is an Argentinian soccer fan who lives in Rome. When the Cold War ended, there was no longer any need for either either Russia or the United States to talk about development and modernization uh, applied to all of humanity. During the Cold War, there wasn't, you know, an inch of desert or, or wasteland anywhere that wasn't valuable in terms of the competition. And each side had to project a model of universal development and uh, on the basis of of human unity. Since the Cold War, uh, the idea of human solidarity vastly diminished. And I I point this out often as a criticism of the current left, where internationalism, uh, is, is, is at such a low level, you know, compared to the domestic agenda. I think there's a kind of left-wing version of American firstism uh, operating, you know, operating here. And again, I think it's the role of the far left, uh, you know, socialists, to in every situation stand for the interests of working people as a whole. Internationally, I mean, there's no discussion about world poverty, no discussion about uh, agriculture, no discussion. Uh, I mean, Africa, you know, in this country, every president and secretary of the state like to go to Africa and stand there with a bunch of smiling uh, kids around them, but there's no lower priority uh, uh, than Africa on almost everybody's agenda, you know apart from, you know, the battles over controlling Africa's credible mineral resources. So that's why, (laughs) that's why, even though I'm uh, an ex-Catholic and a fan of Robespierre, uh, uh, the role of Francis has been extraordinarily uh, important. And in the United States, it's a, a, a literal kind of revolution going on in the catholic church these american bishops uh basically waging war uh against the Vatican but it's not the you know the religious principles okay or liturgical issues that are at stake here it's the fact that you have one world leader i mean i guess we could add the dalai lama too but he doesn't have as much influence he tries to speak in the name of larger humanity and above all of uh, 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 poor humanity. while well, the rest of us are kind of, you know, so totally focused on our own particular life raft or, you know, national space.
0: As you say, the, the power of the human heart and solidarity and in times of crisis, we can hope, we can... Uh, look to and 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 maybe this might be something where people do come together in some ways and work together, even after the COVID crisis. The sense of interdependence, the sense of connection. We're we're in the midst of a vast wave of change for sure, but I, I'd like to thank you, Mike, for taking the time to talk to me today and share your thoughts on your work, your research, your writing you've done, and for your persistent commitment to equality and i wish you the very best with all your ongoing projects slunchid Virgo. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's uh it's difficult to get the balance isn't it between the uh, pessimism and 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 you know um possibility going forward and we didn't get to talk about the military but we didn't get to talk about the arts as well and the, the you know and there seems to be this is just so important being able to visualize it does seem like a time where we we struggle to, to imagine possible futures, you know, and that's quite depressing.
1: Well, I mean, one thing that um, we didn't talk about and that few people talk about these days is the fact that nuclear war, yes. at least on a regional basis, is almost a certainty in the next 30 years. Um, and... That somehow has been left out in this country, at least left out of the progressive, you know, uh, agenda almost entirely. I mean, everybody will say they're anti-nukes or for disarmament, but uh, you know, it's 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 never a major issue or concern. And I mean, I mean, right now, right now, I I think you can think of. uh, you know, at least two places where the danger of nuclear exchange uh, is extraordinarily high: India and Pakistan, Israel and uh, uh, Iran, if they get as far as a nuclear, uh, uh, you know, capacity. But at- atomic bombs are. <laughs> I mean, this is you know like uh, this is old Iron Age technology. Uh, you can find directions on the internet how to build one. The problem has always been uh, miniaturization and 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 delivery. And now there's at least twenty countries uh, that have or can acquire the delivery systems and uh, manufacturing the you know the the explosive itself, the bomb. It's not hard technical at all. I mean. This worries me to death. Maybe because I'm I'm so old. I grew up in the generation where, in in kindergarten and in first grade, once a week we had to hide under our desk.
0: I also feel that you know you talk about the young people as well. And I was talking to a, a psychologist, and he said that that, that he, he was looking at. It, he said, "Well, it could be you know our shadow that this is something our generation didn't do, and it's on the burden of the children." And I'm talking to these Bangladeshi and Indian youth activists, you know the burden they carry the stress the anxiety on the one hand we're all you know inspired by their vision but the personal cost on and and the weight on their shoulders really struck me it's um
1: yeah that's that's the kind of profound um uh, uh point uh yeah but th- this era requires exceptional sacrifice yeah and and people of uh you know, really astonishing character, and they're there.
0: Yes, that's right.
1: But the problem is, you know, the sporadic nature of protest.
0: I really appreciate your time, Mike, and that's been a fascinating discussion. I Really, uh, really interesting. And, um, yeah, lovely to meet you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All the best, then.
0: Yeah, you take care, Mike. Take care. Okay, bye. bye. If you enjoyed this interview, we recommend you check out Fitzcarraldo Editions, an independent publisher specialising in contemporary fiction and long-form essays. Founded in 2014, it focuses on ambitious, imaginative and innovative writing, both in translation and in the English language. Fitzcarraldo Editions publishes, among other authors, 2015 and 2018 Nobel Prize in Literature laureates Svetlana Aleksevich and Olga Dukarchuk. FitzcarraldoEditions.com Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.